Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Laura Kelly, a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Ellie Fishman, the author of the new book, Refugee High, out in paperback on September 3rd. Ellie Fishman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And I am a journalist. I've worked in Milwaukee and Chicago for the last decade or so. My book, Refugee High, came out originally in 2021 and now is coming out in paperback with an updated author's note that looks at the school today and how it's changed since I started reporting, which was back in 2017. The book chronicles a year inside Sullivan High School in Rogers Park on the north side of the city and follows four students. And it fits into my broader work because I've always been interested in young people. I've always been interested in schools. And I've always been interested in telling stories that I think need to be heard and are often overlooked. So that's kind of where this book and project began for me. All right. Great. So let's get into talking about the book. In the book, you report the experiences of four immigrant and refugee teens navigating life in an American high school in Chicago, as you just said. And you just told us how you became interested in exploring this topic and reporting the book. Um, So I wanted to ask, in my experience working with immigrant and refugee youth, sometimes it can be hard to know what's going on in their lives. And this may be because of a language barrier or of a student not being ready or willing to share their previous traumatic experiences. Can you talk a little about how you negotiated your access to the school and participants? How did you come to know the stories of the four focal students so well? It was intentionally slow, which is the beauty of writing and working on a book. I worked in magazines and I still work in magazines and, you know, newspaper reporters will say, wow, you guys have so much time to report a story, but nothing compares to reporting a book. You really... uh, can be so intentional. And I took things slowly, understanding that students were carrying a lot of trauma and that they're young people. And that, like you said, there are language barriers. And I really wanted to make sure that everyone who ended up in the book understood what they were signing up for. So this book actually 
came out of a magazine article I wrote called Welcome to Refugee High that came out in 2017. And that idea emerged after Donald Trump was elected and announced a travel ban from seven majority Muslim countries. And for me, that raised this question of who are refugees and where do they land in Chicago? And I also am always interested in young people and schools because I feel like schools are places where all of the world's joys and heartaches and dreams land at the doors. And I also just like talking to young people as a reporter. I find that to be really fulfilling and always interesting. And I, it, it's just a really special place to be a school. So that quickly pointed me towards Sullivan because it has um, a student body that is 50% refugee or immigrants. And I, when I wrote the original story, I spent some time in the classrooms, just being a fly on the wall, and not didn't even take out my recorder at first, and got to know students and let them get comfortable with me. And some of the teachers even play trust exercise games like hot seat, where I would sit in the front of the room and students could ask me questions. And we did that for several days before I even introduced what my intentions were, which of course were to write the story about refugee students and the school. So that built a basis of trust when I returned to, to report my book. And I, I took a similar approach then too. I hung out in the library where the, the kind of central office for the ESL, ELL program, English language learner program was housed at the time and just got to know students and sort of sussed out who was interested in me and interested in sharing their stories. And again, just talked to them informally without my recorder until some, we had some rapport. And then at that point, once I felt comfortable and they felt comfortable introduced the idea of a book of course for those who are under 18 had to get consent from their parents and then began interviewing them and also shadowing them and it was just a, a slow burn and because of that it also gave me opportunity to continually check in with them and see how they were feeling how they're feeling about the project if they were worried about anything i always wanted them to feel like they had agency in the process. So in reading your book, it reminded me of some similar books that you probably know about, but one of them was an older study called Learning in a New Land, which is similar to what you did. And it, it follows immigrant youth through American high schools. And in that book, the authors write, paradoxically, many families migrate to seek a better education for their children, only to find their children mired in the worst schools in the United States schools that are racially, linguistically, and economically segregated. And your reporting revealed a team of committed educators who worked overtime to make sure that newcomers receive the support that they need, but they were working in an under-resourced school, and sometimes they had budget uncertainties or actual rodent and vermin infestations. 
So what did your reporting reveal about the quality of schooling available to the young people you reported on? And what did you learn about the investments that the U.S. is making in these young people? It's a great question. And I think my answer starts with a kind of interrogation of its own, which is what does it mean to be a good school? And there are a lot of metrics we have to measure that, standardized metrics. And they're not always the best way to measure a place like Sullivan. And that's something that I really wanted to write about in the book because what Sullivan does so beautifully and really succeeds at is not necessarily something that shows up in a test score or in a graduation rate or a college acceptance rate. And it is so much more closely related to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how you make sure a student feels safe and supported and that they have shelter and community and food to eat. And for a lot of these students, those needs are not being met anywhere but school. And so that's a, first of all, that's a big burden on a school to ask to both educate and to fill all these other needs. But it's also why school is such an important place for students like those at Sullivan, because it's a safety net. And it's one of few in our society where a lot of those kinds of safety nets are being stripped away systemically and systematically. And the heart of the book, I feel like, really celebrates that work and how, in my mind, that means Sullivan is, of course, a good school, despite all its challenges, which any neighborhood school in a city like Chicago faces. So speaking of these challenges, you reported a lot about the challenges that immigrant students face both in and out of school. For example, Asengo gets caught up in gang violence and becomes the victim of a shooting. And so this runs counter to this myth of the American dream of you immigrate here and your life will be better after you immigrate. What did your reporting uncover about the challenges your four participants faced? Well, there are innumerable challenges. And I think one of the things for me is as a journalist, you know, you're you're reporting on what you observe and people's realities. And reality, the reality of being a refugee, the reality of being a young person, of being a teenager, it's hard. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to be a teenager. It's hard to be in high school. And it's certainly hard to be a refugee trying to navigate your life as a teenager in an American high school. And I never wanted to paint a Pollyannish picture of what that looked like, both from the students' perspectives or from their teachers. So the four students I follow, just to give a, a brief overview, um, are from four different parts of the world with four very different stories and challenges that they're negotiating. And that I did that on purposefully because I wanted to have a cast of students who offer different perspectives on the resettlement process. Uh, those four students are Belenge, who is a sophomore from 
the Congo, although he was born in a refugee camp in Tanzania, so he's never actually been to the Congo. Shahina, who is from Myanmar, she's also a sophomore, and she had lived in Malaysia as well. There's Mariah, who's from Iraq and came to the U.S. at age 10, and of the four is by far the most kind of acclimated and assimilated into American culture. And then there's Alejandro, who's an asylum seeker from Guatemala City. He is a senior in the book and awaiting his day in court to find out whether he will, in fact, receive asylum. And so between these four students, you see all many different hurdles and challenges that they encounter. As you mentioned, gun violence is is one of them. And that is something that a lot of teenagers in Chicago deal with and cope with in their own lives. And these students at Sullivan are not exempt from that. In the case of Shahina, who's from Myanmar, she is really fighting for her own autonomy and without giving too much away, she, you know, is clawing her way out of her mother's expectations, one of which is uh, marriage at a very young age. Mariah, too, is trying to navigate her own path and and walks this tightrope between Iraqi culture and American culture and kind of who she wants to be and what she wants to carry with her and what she wants to shed. And then, as I mentioned, Alejandro is the the big thing that's hanging over him is is his asylum case. But I also didn't want to only focus on their challenges because what I found inside Sullivan was so much joy and so so much beauty. And that also was something that I realized is not often communicated in the refugee experience and writing about writings about the refugee experience. But that was absolutely what I was hit with when I walked through the doors of Sullivan for the first time. And every day I returned the sounds of different music and jokes and pranks and viral videos and gossip and flirting, you know, the teenage life. The stuff of, you know, every Netflix show we watch and every teen movie we watch. It, that makes it such a del- delicious and time of life and all, of course also hard and challenging but um i wanted that to also be just as much part of the book as the challenges that that, that these four students face yeah so tell us more about the educators and the structure of the school and what they did to foster and create this joy. So a moment ago, you mentioned all the resources available to the students that sometimes people might not realize are things that schools are offering, um, like food pantries and things of that nature. Um, what are, what were some of the resources available, um, some of the things that teachers did because this was um, a place where refugee and immigrant students landed as opposed to a different kind of high school. One event in the book that I spend a lot of time on is this Thanksgiving that they have every year, and they actually call it Refugee Thanksgiving. And it's an event that started when I was reporting the book and has only grown since. Now, it when in the book, it's 
in the kind of community room in the school, but now it's in the auditorium because so many people from the community in the school show up to celebrate together. And it's really a chance for refugee students to share their culture. So they bring their own dishes to share with their classmates and members and, and neighbors from Rogers Park and to connect with graduates from Sullivan. And, and Sullivan's history is so interesting because it's been a landing place for refugee and immigrants since it opened in 1929 and as the world has changed the demographics have changed and many of the alumni of the school who are still like very involved and feel and are amazingly dedicated to Sullivan are Jewish immigrants and came from families of Jewish refugees and to see that generation connect with the newest refugees arriving at Sullivan is really special. And that kind of sits at the heart of this Thanksgiving event. And also they just invite the neighbors of the school because, you know, a school sits in a community. And from my perspective, it, it thrives when it really functions as part of that bigger ecosystem. And Chad Thomas, the principal of the school really understood that. And so he and his team create these opportunities and moments to to connect and i think that the refugee thanksgiving is is a really special one can you tell us more about the support students got for learning english yeah so the way the ell the english language learner program is set up at sullivan is that students uh move through the day in blocks and they're assessed based on their english language skills and so they're put in a class with students who are at a similar level. So for students who do not have really any English, they're in ELL1, which is often or was called the silent class. And it's not because the class is quiet. It's certainly not. But it's because it's the class where students have the least fluency in English. And then there's EL2, and it goes up through four. And that also allows students to build relationships with one another and grow together and I think that creates a cohesive community at Sullivan there's also importantly a social worker who works specifically with the EL students Josh Zapata and I think his work really holds that school up and he runs therapy circles and small groups and also meets with students individually. He's also, like so many teachers in a public school system, like the after-school coordinator. And so he runs band camp and he's a soccer coach and he champions anime club. I mean, the guy does this and <laughs> does everything. I don't know when he sleeps, frankly. And they also have tutors who help in the classroom and they also actually rely on other students. They have student leaders uh, because there are 40 countries represented inside Sullivan in an equal number of languages. Usually when a new student comes, they're able to pair them up with a student who has been at the school longer to help be a guide for them and help them navigate not only classwork 
and scheduling, but all the rest of the social fabric that comes with being inside a high school too. So this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One thing that was interesting to me in reading was some of the experiences of the African refugees that you wrote about. Um, It reminded me of an educational researcher, Kevin Roxas, who has described experiences of African refugees attempting to fit in at predominantly Black schools. And he describes how African students were not always welcomed by African-American students and how teachers did not necessarily support the efforts of African students to adopt cultural practices like dress or talk of African-American students. And some of this tension is evident in your reporting, too, between African and American Black students. And then there are other inter-ethnic conflicts that you describe in the book as well. What did you learn about what it's like for immigrant students to interpret and try to fit in to America's racialized systems? I think it's really hard. And as you mentioned, there are a few moments in the book where you see some of that tension surface. And, you know, clickishness and trying to figure out how to fit in is already part of the high school experience. And then you add coming from a different culture, coming from a culture where maybe you've never seen a Black person before or a person of any other ethnicity besides your own, or maybe you've never been in a class with the opposite sex. Uh, All these things can mean that conflict and tension are just exasperated in, in certain situations. And, and, and of course, language barrier is a huge part of it, too, and cultural practices. And again, this goes back to the question, I think, about what it means to be a good school, because this work is often not happening on the work of the teachers to try and negotiate this and mitigate this and educate around these conflicts is happening like in the cafeteria and in the library or on the soccer field, not necessarily in the classroom. And one of the most powerful things I saw happen was really allowing, creating space for students to work these tensions out among themselves. So in those therapy groups that I talked about that Josh creates, where there's really a culture of vulnerability and and opening up, which can be hard to do when you're in the hallway, you know, going from class to class. Or rather than um, a teacher offering a lesson on, you know, why you shouldn't throw up a, a gang sign in a hallway that, you know, this is something that happened with a group of Syrian boys. They were mimicking what they saw in the hallways. She actually had another student, a Black American student, who grew up surrounded by gangs and having to n- navigate gang culture himself impart that lesson for them and uh, again like thinking about 
everything as an ecosystem and letting and and trying to and being really thoughtful about who should deliver those lessons and 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 what will be most impactful is something that I saw the teachers at Sullivan do a lot. So one thing I didn't know before we started talking today was that the new release with the paperback has a new author's note about some of the things that have been going on at the school since you originally published it. So what is the update from Sullivan High in the last few years? It's changed so much. As you might imagine, the fall of Kabul and the evacuation from Afghanistan had a huge and pretty immediate impact on Sullivan. And that happened just a few days after the book came out, actually. And I I knew that it was going to change the landscape of the school. So I decided to report on it. And I, I just kept going back to the school in the fall of 2021 and through the 2022 school year. And by between basically December and June, they received close to 100 Afghan refugees. And Sullivan's not that big of a school. And so that meant that by the end of the year, one in seven students was now Afghan, which is huge. That's a, that can really change the tenor of the school in many, many ways. And it, it did. And one of the things that I found so interesting about this group of refugees, and I know was particularly challenging for the teachers and staff at Sullivan, was the way in which they came to the U.S. You know, so rather than the typical refugee process, which can take many, many years, and most refugees arrive here either having lived in a refugee camp or in a secondary country while they're waiting to get resettled, in the United States, these Afghan students, you know, their whole lives were upended in a matter of days. And then they were brought to the United States, many of them held in these military bases that were turned into temporary refugee camps, and then put, you know, resettled into communities. So the experience in a matter of months, the experience of having to leave their home country and come to the U.S. and and start anew was really, really fresh. And their trauma and every and that whole experience was really raw. And that meant that being in school, sitting in chairs, being in a new environment was hard and hard on their teachers. So there was that part. And then also, you know, many might think of the Afghan community as a monolith, but it's far from that. You know, they're, they speak different languages. They're coming from different cultures and backgrounds and the difference in education levels between those who grew up in Kabul and those who grew up in rural Afghanistan, especially parts under Taliban rule were, were miles apart. So you had classrooms where there were students who were completely fluent in English. They went to international schools sitting across from young women in particular who were not allowed to go to school and were not able to read in or write in any language. So the teachers at Sullivan had to be nimble and and adjust in ways that I don't think they had ever had to do before. 
And it was really, really fascinating to watch that unfold. And that is all detailed in the new author's note that comes with the paperback. Before I ask our final question, is there anything else that you want to say about this book or the topic of refugee and immigrant experiences at school? Well, one of the things that really drew me to this story initially was that first moment when I walked into Sullivan back in 2017 and encountering this total polyglot place with so many different languages, like I said, and sounds and sights and smells. And for me, it upended this image and that I didn't even realize that I was carrying of the refugee experience, which lived inside refugee camps or on crowded boats. And what I hadn't seen as much was the next part of the journey, the part where they land in our communities and become our neighbors and our students and our friends and our colleagues. And I really wanted to dig into that part of the story because we're part of that story as Americans, as citizens, as neighbors. And I wanted, you know, I felt like spending time with these students and and inside the school made me a better neighbor, made me a better friend, a better community member. And I wanted to, you know, share what I witnessed with readers because, you know, maybe there's somebody in their own community who is experiencing this journey. And I also wanted to highlight this part because it also shows what we share, especially inside of high school. I recognize myself in these students. I mean, I, you know, I basically went back to high school to report this book and my dreams, like my, my anxiety dreams reverted back to my high school anxiety dreams. Like I had, I forgot to study for my geometry test. And so it was, you know, really deep in my marrow as I was reporting this book. But I think that's also a reflection of, you know, this universal experience and something that I think so many readers can relate to no matter when you left high school. And I wanted, I wanted that to be part of the book because a lot of writing about refugees can be very othering. And this is about, this kind of story also shows what what we share as a community. And that continues to be true even as the student population changes at Sullivan, which it has with, you know, the Afghan students. And now most of the new students who are enrolling are are from Venezuela and South America and are part of these waves of migrants who are now landing in cities like Chicago. So our final question, what are you working on now? Well, I continue to write about students at Sullivan, but also the kind of broader network of uh, refugee stories in Chicago, including including this migrant crisis that's happening on, in Chicago and cities like Chicago. I'm working on a couple stories that will focus on the most recent arrivals to the city. I also was recently reporting a piece on refugee scholars who have been placed at universities around the country and specifically in my case, the University of Chicago, including an Afghan filmmaker, which I, from Kabul University, which was a really fascinating story to learn about, 
you know, it gave me opportunity to learn about the film industry that flourished for 20 years in Afghanistan and overnight was destroyed. I'm also working on a series about maternal health and particularly immigrant and refugee maternal health and what it means to intersect our healthcare system as a new mother or as a pregnant person. I'm finding ways to continue to write about the these stories, but from different perspectives. As as the students who I followed in the book get older, as I do, you know, as and as the world turns and changes. I mean, I I feel so invested in telling these kinds of stories. So and I feel really lucky that I and privilege that I get to continue to do that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today and telling us about your book and your work. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me and for the great questions.